Romans 8, 1 through 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. (laughs) All right. Well, first of all, I want to start off by saying thank you. Thank you so much for your gift to me personally, uh, the Logos Bible software. It is officially purchased and on my computer. It takes like three hours to download. That is how much of a, a gift that you gave to me. It's literally thousands upon thousands of resources, and I have probably about two hours worth of tutorial videos before I can really even start using it because it is just a very robust uh, piece of software. But I am very, very thankful for just how you guys have blessed us, and um, hopefully it will be a blessing to you as we use it to study and, and bring the Word of God to you. And, the, and another thing that I spaced on, that my wife uh, has given me grief on this, is thank you for the stroller. It's been a long time since we've said that publicly. I think she said that to everybody personally. But that stroller, um, Judah is super pumped to ride in his special little seat where he gets to stand or sit. That stroller has been amazing, and I'm sure will be much better here in just a short couple of weeks as we are getting ready to add yet another to the Rosentreiter household. So I did want to start off by just saying thank you uh, to you guys. And with that, let's turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. We are back in the book of Titus. We took a short break last week as we coveted together as a church. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, as we're going to be today. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. I'm going to keep this thing where it needs to be. Well, as we did that, like I said, last week we coveted together. That's a big deal. We made a promise before one another and before God with our first group of people who went through the membership class and did our pastoral interview process and those kind of things that we were a church, that we are coming together and we're promising to one another. And when that happens, we become a people. That might be something kind of weird to think about, but that is, that's what happened last week. We became a people. And according to this passage that we're looking at, when we become Christians, we become a part of the larger church in general, the church universal. And you become a, a part of a people, and that people is of Christ's own possession. 
He owns us because he has bought us with his blood. That's what that word redemption even means. And so when we do that as a group of people in a local church, we're just coming together and really saying officially and symbolically that we recognize that truth, that we're not just individuals lone gunning it all by ourselves, but rather we are a people. But what we want to see is that we're a people who are impacted by grace, forever impacted by grace. And so today what I want us to see is just three things from this passage, that we are a people and we are a people who are trained by grace. We are a people who are waiting on grace and we are a people who have been redeemed by grace. So that's what we're going to look through as we walk through this passage together. We are people trained, a people waiting, and a people redeemed all by grace and grace alone. And so we'll read our passage for this morning, which is Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. It says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave us for gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let me pray for us. Father, God, I pray as we look at this passage this morning that we would fall in love and be subdued by grace and grace alone. I pray, God, that as the word is open to us, we remember that the grass fades, the flowers wither, but the word of the Lord endures forever. That it's your word as it is sown deep into our hearts that changes us and impacts us because that is a wonderful means of grace that you've given. So God, I pray as we look at what it looks like to be a people of your own possession, a people who are zealous for good works, that we see that that has to happen through one means and one means only through your grace. So help us, help me, Father, as we come to this passage, as we learn and we become ever more endeared and intoxicated by your love and the grace that you've shown us. I ask this all in your name. Ever Amen. Well, as we look at this, we will want to look at the first two verses. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. The grace of God here is being personified. For the grace of God that has appeared, that has shown up, is who? It is, it's Jesus. Jesus is the one who appeared, who, who showed up, who came and dwelt among us. This is a way that, that Paul is kind of wrapping in the whole gospel message. The message that Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died the death we deserve, rose again from the dead so that we might conquer sin and death through him. That message, that gospel message is being communicated right there in just that little phrase, the grace of God has appeared. And what has it done? It has brought salvation to all people. Now, I think we want to understand this as all kinds of people. This passage is not teaching us that everyone in the world is somehow a Christian because of what Jesus has done. We know that throughout the Bible that it's those who plus the put their faith and trust in Jesus that come to know Jesus. If everybody was automatically in, we would never ask people like the video we just saw to go and give up their their lives here in America, to go live on the other side of the world. They're doing that so that all kinds of people 
can come to know Jesus. And I think that's supported by the first, the last 10 verses we've just seen. Whether you're old or young, male, female, or rich or poor, slave and free, salvation has come to all kinds of people. No matter who you are, no matter your situation, if you place your faith and trust in Jesus, you can be saved. But that's not all that Jesus came to do. He didn't just come to save us. And that's amazing. It's even weird to say say it like that. Like, he didn't just come to save us. Salvation is so great and so amazing, our justification. But he has also come, and by grace, to train us. He is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And he's training us to do that now, in this present age, in this moment. He is training us to say no to one thing, but to say yes to another. The movement towards holiness is always that. It's a movement towards something. It can't just be stop doing the bad things. We also are to start doing what God is calling us to do. But what we want to see is that training, that training that Jesus has come to do is done through grace. Now, if you're anything like me, when you hear the word training, you don't think, oh, glory, grace upon grace. When I think of training, I think of early mornings. I think of wind sprints. Some people call them suicides because they're horrible. I think of lifting that bar just one more time as I push. I think of boot camp. I think of rigorous academic study of just memorizing things over and over and over again until I get a headache. Think of my old Hebrew class days. That exam literally gave me a headache for two days straight. And now I don't remember any of it. That's why you guys bought me Lagos. <laughs> but that's what we see, right? That's what we think. When I think training, that's what I think. And when I think about that, I don't think, woo, grace. Now that's just grace right there. Because when I think of grace, I think grace should be easy. Grace should be the thing that's simple, right? That's, that's the free stuff. After all, that's what grace is. Grace is unmerited favor. That's an easy way to remember. That's what grace equals. Grace is getting something good when I deserve something bad. And that's what we have in Jesus, right? We deserve hell and death, but we have life and eternity with God. That's the grace of God. And what this passage is telling us is that grace, that gospel, is training us to say no, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live a different way, to live a godly life instead And what I think we have to learn is that that effort that you have, the ability to even want to train yourself for something that is good, for godliness, is God's work of grace in your life. See, to to push that bar up one more time, to do that one last wind sprint, to go to boot camp, to keep studying just for 15 more minutes, the only thing that keeps us doing that is because we believe what's on the other side is worth it. Because if you're like me, you want to win in the fourth quarter when the other guy is tired. You want to pass that exam. You want to make sure that when you hit the battlefield that you're prepared for it. It's only seeing the end and having a greater affection for something else that we go through the training. And what I want to say is that's what's happening for us. Only if God has radically changed your affections, has radically changed you on the inside, will you ever put yourself through studying the Bible and memorizing what you need to memorize, waking up early just so you can have a little bit more time with Jesus, praying, showing up to church on Sunday when it's hard, going to your small group, going to the men's or women's studies. All of those things, they require effort. They require us to say, yeah, I'm going to commit to doing that. I'm going to make that happen. 
But you're never going to do it by just white-knuckling it. You do those things and you take those steps because God has put a greater love and a greater affection in you. He has shown you the truth that it's so worth it and beyond worth it. That getting to know him and know him better is what we do. See, those other things are important and they're good. Those other things that we see are what we might call the law, the rules of the faith. And we need the law. The problem is a lot of us look and say, how do I want to change? I know more rule, more law. That's what I do. And we're really, really good at that when we think, how can I help someone else change? Well, I'll know what I do. I'll give them more law, right? That's what we want to say. See, the law is good. We can think about the law. The law is like the Ten Commandments. The law is the Beatitudes that Jesus teaches us through. The law is every exhortation that Paul gives us, like this one, all the do's and don'ts of the Christian life. But the Bible tells us that the law cannot change us. The law points us to our our need for change. The law shows us where we fall short. We need it. It's good. But the law is weak. The law cannot change you. That was the the scripture reading that we have. I just want to pick out just two verses of that from Romans 8, 3 through 4. And it says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Did you catch that? The law can't do it. The law can't change you. He says, By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That's the part that I'm saying. The grace of God is being wrapped into that story that Jesus was sent to live and die on our behalf. He said, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Galatians tells us that if we walk according to the flesh, we will not, or excuse me, if we walk according to the spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If you want to see change in your life, if you want to grow in the Christian life, You have to embrace grace. The law's not going to get you there. Setting up more rules and boundaries is not going to make it happen because it's weak and it's been weakened by the flesh. But what the law does is it points us to our need. It points us to a savior and it helps us see that it's by grace and grace alone that we are saved. There is a a short little verse written by a a man. We think it's written by John Bunyan. It gets a little hard because John Bunyan wrote a long, long time ago. When things are written a long time ago, sometimes we think it's them, but we're not positive. But we think it was John Bunyan who wrote this little verse, and it says this, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. That little verse is so helpful because that's what we see, the relationship between law and grace and what they do. The law, it demands and it demands and it demands and it says you have to live this way. But it does not give you the ability to obey God. It gives neither feet nor hands. It just puts weight on you. But better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly. It says, it comes to you, it says fly, live but it also it gives us wings. What grace does when it changes us is it gives us the ability to change. It's the, what trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a life that is self-controlled, upright, and godly. And that's what we see in our passage this morning. That's what we want to see that we must do. We see that training by grace and grace alone, it is training, It is effort, but it's only accomplished by grace. 
That's why we not only train by grace, but we also must wait on it. In verse 13, it tells us that we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The reality is this, is life is hard. Especially, especially if you are committed to growth. If you are committed to spiritual growth, life is hard. Because there are times where you really feel, I know I feel, like I am fighting a losing battle. So when we say things like you're renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions, those aren't light or easy things. Those are hard things. Your worldly passions are that. You're passionate about it. If you're honest, there are parts of your sin, you like it. You don't want to just naturally change. That Your desire for change is coming from the way that God has changed you, but there is still a war going on inside of you between the flesh and the spirit. You have not arrived yet. You're struggling and you're fighting and you feel the weight of that. And it feels like you're fighting this losing battle. We are being trained by grace, but that training feels like 5 a.m. wind sprints sometimes. And when you're doing that and you're living that kind of life and you're feeling that kind of difficulty, you've got to wait on something. You've got to put your trust in something. And this text is telling us that Christians wait. They trust in their blessed hope. And that blessed hope is the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That word there that's, that's translated as appearing, and it's the same word in the, in the first part, which says for grace has appeared. It's where we get the word epiphany. And you think through what an epiphany is. An epiphany is when you have a sudden realization or manifestation of something that's true. It totally changes the way that you think about life, right? An epiphany is like the moment Steve Jobs thought about the iPhone, right? That was an epiphany that made him a gajillionaire. That's an epiphany. It's when something sudden like that kind of happens, it's a, what Jimmy will call a paradigm shift. If you're hanging out with Jimmy a lot, he really likes that term, right? He reads something in the Bible. He's like, oh, it's a paradigm shift. It's something that suddenly changes the way that he looks at the world, the way that we see that. What we want to see is that there will be, there was an epiphany. Something sudden happened that totally and radically changed the entire world. It's when Jesus came, lived the perfect life, and then the Spirit of God fell on them at Pentecost after Jesus ascended into heaven. Those are epiphanies. God is coming. He's dwelling with us, and it's radically changing everything forever, and it's sudden. But Paul is saying there's another epiphany coming. There's another sudden change that's going to be radical. It's the appearing of Jesus. It's when he returns. See, there are times in life that are really, really difficult, and you've got to know that this is not the end. This is not how it's always going to be. That there is a better day coming. That Jesus will come and he will come suddenly like a thief in the night. And sometimes in those difficult moments, we've got to cry out and say, Oh, Jesus, I need you to change me. I'm really struggling. The change isn't coming the way that I, that I thought it would. Because the reality is, is we know that, that, our, our, that we are 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 here. We're struggling. We're, we're working through this. In 1 Corinthians 13, 12, it, it, it describes that that day will be like this. For now, 
we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know, even as I have been fully known. Paul is talking about the return of Christ there in 1 Corinthians 13. He's talking about when Jesus comes back and he's saying, right now in this moment, you are warring with your spirit and your flesh. It is hard and it is difficult. And it's like you're looking into a mirror dimly. But listen, one day you're going to see him face to face. One day you're going to know him fully. And that's what we have to wait on. That's what we have to trust in. That's what we have to anchor ourselves in. I want to give you an example of that in my life. I'll just be transparent again. I shared something like this really similar in a community group, and it happened again because I'm a slow learner. But just the other day, about two nights ago, um, you know, Vera had a hospital stay. It's been about, Brittany pointed out, it's been about a month. And ever since that hospital stay, she has not really been back to normal. She's not sleeping again. And and we're back, and, and I was dealing with her, and I was mad. I was frustrated, and and I'm really worried, and I can feel the worried because we've got another baby coming, like, real quick. And I'm like, she's got to figure this out because I, I can't do this. And, and, I'm, and I'm sitting there, and I'm really tired, and I'm, I'm really frustrated, and, and, I, and I can just feel myself saying, like, God, why? And I'm, and I'm praying to the Lord in that moment, and I'm praying, I, and I'm just kind of venting, I guess, if I'm honest. God, like, I know you could fix this. You could take this away. Like, you are capable of putting her to sleep right now. And you're not doing it. Why? Why aren't you just taking this thing away? I know you have the power to do that. I know that you're able to do that. But you're not. You're not just taking away my circumstance and my, and my struggle. And, and by God's grace, I'd been meditating on Isaiah 40, 27 through 31, because I'd listened to a podcast about raising children, and it encouraged me to do that. And so I was, I was meditating on that. And I just want to read that verse, those verses for you, and just kind of walk you through what happened to me in that moment. It says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? That's where I was. I was in verse 27. It might as well read, why do you say, O Josh, speak, O Mr. Rosentreter? My way is hidden from the Lord. God, don't you see what I'm going through? I'm tired. I want to go to bed. Put her to sleep. Have you forgotten me? Has my right been disregarded by God? But he answers, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary, and his understanding is unsearchable. Of course I know, Josh. I know exactly what you're going through. I'm here right now. I have created everything From where you stand in central Ohio to the far east of the world and places that you have never been, I spoke them into existence. I am the everlasting God. I have always been and always will be. I've created all the ends of the earth. In my understanding, it is unsearchable. Are you really questioning that I don't know? Of course I know. And I don't faint and I don't grow weary. And I give power to the faint and to him who will, and I can increase your strength. And it says, even youth shall fall faint and shall be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength, and they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. 
I found myself there praying, God, I'm a young man, and I'm tired. I'm about to fall over, exhausted. I, I am really tired. I don't know, so what do I need to do? And I think the biggest problem that we have in these kinds of moments is we just think, it's just what I need to do. Just give me a Bible verse to memorize. Just give me something to pray. Just give me something to recite. If I could just do this, and then I'll check that box, and then it'll be gone. But the text tells us that those who wait upon the Lord, they shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. And in that moment, I, I just started wrestling through as I'm holding her and just like, oh, please fall asleep. Wrestling through. What does it mean? I have to ask myself, what does it mean? What does it look like right now to wait on the Lord? How do I wait on God? Father, help me just wait on you. And I just prayed and prayed and prayed. And eventually she went to sleep. And then we went to sleep. And we woke up the next morning, and Brittany had her own kind of moment standing at the kitchen sink. And she just looked at me, and she's like, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? And she can hardly reach the dishes and run her belly. And she's just looking like, there's another one coming. How are we going to do this? And I was looking at her and said, I don't know. I don't know how we're going to do this. I have no idea. And I just opened up Isaiah 40, and I read verses 27 through 31 to her. And I said, we're, we're going to wait on the Lord. Because I don't know what else to do. That's, that's what we're going to do. And I will say, something supernatural happened. We were renewed. We were laughing and not crying anymore. We were having a good time. Now, our kids, our circumstances get any better. Vera woke up multiple times last night, too. Like, it, 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 like that's not what God change, promises to change. What God promises to change is you. He promises to change you. Sometimes your circumstances change, and that's awesome. A lot of times they don't. And we have to learn, are we going to be a people who are waiting on the grace of God? And what's so difficult about that is I wish my application point to you was like, do this, and then things will get better. My application point to you is wait upon the Lord. Because something supernatural has to give sometimes. And that's where we were at. I don't know how we made it through the next day, but we made it. We were renewed strength and renewed vigor, and we were happy in the midst of hard circumstances. I don't tell that story for your pity. I don't tell that story in any way to make us look good. Because let me tell you, there's a lot going on that we don't look very good in the Rosentrader house in that time. But I do tell that story to do something. I do want to do something in you. I want to make you jealous. I want to see you feel the zeal. I want you to desire that kind of moment. Because as hard as it is, it was incredible. To be renewed by the Lord in a way that I cannot really explain and tangibly say, this is what happened. He proved his word to be true to me in that moment. The Bible came alive. And I want to make you jealous for that. I want to make you desire deeply that you don't just read this book and it doesn't mean anything to you, but you read it and you say, I need that. I need it to come alive. I need it to jump off the page. God, I want to live in such a way that if you don't show up, I'm going to fall exhausted. 
and then to watch him show up. And it don't only look pretty, and it doesn't always show up in the way that you want him to. But he shows up. He shows up. He is good, and he is gracious, and we can wait upon the Lord because he matters. We are a blessed people. Because not only are we a people who can look forward to the coming day of Jesus when things are really bad and saying, I don't know how I'm going to get through this moment, but Lord, one day you're going to an epiphany, you're going to show up and it's going to be sudden and the suffering's going to be gone. But we are also a people who get to look back. We get to look back at the redemption that we have in Jesus because we are a people who are redeemed by grace. Verse 14 it talks about this, speaking of Jesus. The Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Christ died to pay our debt. The reality is, 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 is the book of Romans, Paul talks about sin, and he, and he talks about sin as a slave master, how you are enslaved to sin, and, and sin is this evil, cruel taskmaster of a master. He cracks the whip, and he demands on you. Sin doesn't let you go. You never get off early. You work seven days a week. That's what sin does, and it pushes and pushes, and sin grinds and grinds and grinds on you. Sin is hard to live under, and you are totally enslaved to sin. But the reality of, if we can remember back to the the slavery of the Bible that Paul was dealing with, that bond servitude, if you will, it was a lot of times contractual, right? You could kind of work yourself out of it. And what Paul is saying, not if your master is cruel, not if your master breaks the rules, and that's the kind of master you have under sin. It's a loophole. It's a rigged system. You're going to work, and you're going to work, and you're work, and you're never going to get out. Because all the while, while you're doing some good things, you're also doing the bad things. And you cannot get away, let alone you're born into sin, and there's nothing you can do about your depraved state that you're born in. You need someone born of a virgin who's lived a perfect life, who doesn't have that to die for your sin, to pay that debt. And so here you are, and you're trying to pay off this debt that you just simply cannot pay off. And he's this cruel taskmaster that will never, ever let you go. But the Bible tells us in Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14, it tells us this what Jesus did. But you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That contract that you're under, it gets canceled in Jesus. He pays the debt. This he set aside and he nailed it to the cross. That is good news. Jesus paid your debts that you could not pay. He redeemed us. That word redeem, it's an economic term. term. He bought what you could never buy. He bought you back so that now you are a people of his own possession. He bought you from all lawlessness. You no longer are a slave to sin because he died and he resurrected. He paid the debt in the cross and then he resurrected from the grave so that you could trust in a living Savior who's coming back, reigning and returning. That's what we get to have. But it's not just that. He's also bought us to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. 
See, what the Bible teaches is that we no longer belong to ourselves. And because we don't belong to ourselves, we have hope. He didn't just buy you back and let you go free all by yourself. That's not very good news because you're a bad master too. He bought you and gave you a good master. In the Heidelberg Catechism, it says one of the most encouraging things that I've ever read outside of the Bible. It says this, question one is, what is our only comfort in life and death? Listen to the answer that it gives. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins and his precious blood, with his precious blood, and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation, because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. If you look up the Heidelberg Catechism, it'll tell you what passage of scripture that it takes us from, and there's a lot of them, but Titus 2.14 gets listed. It's so counterintuitive to me. Someone asked me, what's your comfort in life and death? Our answer is that I am in control. My comfort in life and death is that I am my own person. I get to do whatever I want to do. That's, that's what comfort's all about. But that's not what these godly men who wrote these statements said when they looked at the scriptures. They said, what is your comfort in life and death? What is the best thing that could ever happen to you? That I am not my own. But I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You are not your own. You have been redeemed. You are blood-bought. You are a people of his own possession. And that is wonderful, wonderful news. We don't belong to ourselves. That is, that's the best part, that we're owned. Because we're not owned anymore by a cruel taskmaster. But we're owned by a compassionate, kind father and king who loves us, who sympathizes with our weaknesses, who's there for us, who comforts us in the middle of the night when we're struggling, who's, who's there to care, who looks at us in such a way that not a hair from your head is going to fall apart from his good will and pleasure in your life. There is nothing that happens to you, nothing that happens to you that does not work together for your good. That's what Romans 8.28 promises you. All things work together for the good of those who love him. He is doing a work in you. This promise that you're owned by him means that there is no such thing as meaningless pain in your life. Every single ounce of it is going to be used for glory. That's amazing news. And if you don't believe that, I don't know where else you go in this life. I have no idea what else you put your anchor in. Because life is hard. Life is hard for everybody. But we have good news in the gospel. 
we have good news that we can do what is good. We can do what is right. Why? Because we belong to the Lord. We are redeemed by him, by his grace. Last week, Rush told us that when Redemption Hill Church becomes a church, it wasn't just a good thing for us. But he said it was a good thing for the world. Do you believe that? Do you believe that a new church being born, and not just a new church, but us, you, coming to know Jesus, another Christian being added when you became a believer, Christians rallying together, covenanting together, do you really believe that that is good for the world? I will tell you this. If we become a group of people captured by grace and not by the law, captured by the grace that trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives, a people waiting on a blessed hope that is better than anything else, who knows that their great God and Savior Jesus is coming. It's just over the horizon. He's on his way. A people who know to their deep, deep core they are redeemed possession of him you will be filled with a zeal for good works and if you are zealous to do what is good and is right yeah that's good for the world that is great for galloway prairie township west columbus hilliard and grove city That is good news for them because there are more people who will herald the best news that has ever hit this planet, that Jesus Christ came to die for sinners, that there is grace upon grace. If we believe that, if it burns within our bones, that's going to be good for the world. And that is my hope, that is my prayer for us. That we would be a place that loves God and loves people. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for every good and precious gift that you give. We thank you that you are the king of the universe and that you do all things well. We thank you that your sovereign hand does not let an ounce of pain go to waste. There will never be a sleepless night unused in the life of the Christian. There will never be a, a bad diagnosis, a disappointing truth or disappointing outcome. There will never be a loss that is not used by the sovereign and good God of the universe because grace appeared. Because Jesus, you appeared. You came suddenly in a way that we didn't know. After 400 years of silence, you came through the cries of a baby. And you lived and you died a perfect life. And then you ascended on high. And then you came again in your spirit as you fell on the apostles and the disciples at Pentecost and you dwell in them and now you dwell in every believer. Everybody who comes to know Jesus is filled with the Spirit of God. It's here and it's sudden. And Lord, so we get to wait upon the Lord. We get to wait on you and and be filled with hope. 
Help us, God. Help us wait upon the Lord. Wait upon that blessed hope if it is appearing. It's just over the bend. It's just over the horizon. Help us know we're blood-bought. This life is not our own, but we belong, body and soul, to our faithful God, Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you for what you've done. Change us. We ask this in your name.